This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The Smart Beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? 
Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, three different perspectives on the travel industry during hard times. My conversation with Keith Bond, CEO of one of the largest hotel groups in the world, Intercontinental, and his global perspective on the hospitality business. Then I'll look at the billions of dollars the airlines have been holding back. That's right, billions in refunds to passengers for flights the airlines themselves canceled during the COVID-19 crisis. Scott McCartney of the Wall Street Journal has the hard numbers. And then my chat with Food Network judge Troy Johnson on the current state of affairs in the restaurant business and what chefs and owners are doing to avoid extinction. First up, Keith Barr. My next guest has lived all over the globe. He's been in Asia. He's been in the Middle East. He's now in the UK. He also happens to be the CEO of Intercontinental Hotels. His name is Keith Barr. Keith, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me here. And uh, by the way, fantastic support you're doing for food banks. And we're doing the same thing around the world. And it's such an incredibly important thing to do to support communities. So well done. I'm really, really, it's great to see that. Yeah, especially now. You know, uh, I, I wanted you to come on the show, Keith, because depending on, on the metric that you use, you could be considered the largest hotel group in the country, in the world. Yeah, I mean, we've got in 100 countries and territories around the world, uh, 6,000 hotels, uh, 850,000 hotel rooms, and another public quarter million in development. So we're sort of everywhere that there are hotels and where you want to be. So we are we are global and we are big. And it's not just Intercontinental, of course, the brand that so many people recognize because they've stolen the towels is Holiday Inn. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of it's the it's the brand that kind of set up uh, travel for mainstream America and then later on the world. So Holiday Inn, an incredibly iconic brand, which is it's probably even more important today considering um, how travel has evolved during this pandemic uh, with people moving to doing the great American road trip all over again, which is how Kevin Wilson founded the Holiday Inn brand. And we've kind of seen that resurgence again of people traveling in cars uh, across the United States. But the green and white towels are gone, aren't they? They are gone, you know, but there are a few out there. And I, I think you may probably have one at home as well. And I think that we have a, we have quite a few in, in our archives as well. But they uh, <laughs> are, are great memories that we all re- reflect upon fondly. Well, let's get beyond towels here and talk about the serious stuff. We're dealing with how the world is emerging from this, how it's, how it's coping, how it's adjusting, how you had to pivot. I mean, almost overnight, you know, it went from 60 to zero, right? It was like shut down. And how are you coming back? And what are you doing to come back? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, uh, you know, we have been through uh, 9-11, we've been through the financial crisis and, uh, and financial disasters and tsunamis, and we've never faced anything like this as an industry. And it's been um, incredibly challenging. And, and I think where I say we are today is we're recovering, we're resilient, but it's tough out there. You know, we now have about 95% of our hotels open globally. Um, most of our hotels were open up in the United States, and we're seeing travel begin to come back. But clearly, it's challenged by whether it's country closures, um, restrictions between state-to-state travel in the United States, social distancing measures. So the, the industry is recovering, but it's a really, really tough time. And uh, you know, we're trying to do everything we can to make sure our, our guests feel safe, our colleagues are safe. 
and that we're work, working to support our businesses around the world. Now, obviously, you and every other hotel brand have come up with some very specific and high-tech you know, cleaning protocols, disinfecting protocols, and obviously behavioral protocols. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, we had great standards in place beforehand with the IHG way of clean. Uh, we had worked with uh, world-class companies like Ecolab and Diversity to make sure we're using the same chemicals that are used effectively in hospitals. Uh, but then we reached out to the Cleveland Clinic, a world-class leader in understanding kind of pathogens and things like that. And they're saying, how can we enhance our protocols and making sure we're doing all the right things in our hotels? And that's what we've really been focused on, is making sure that we're operating our hotels in a way that is safe for our colleagues, safe for our customers, and enabling people to have still a great experience. Um, but it's a challenge to be very open about that. You know, I, I, I traveled recently to one of our hotels in France, and they did an amazing job. And you're seeing how hard our colleagues have to work where, you know, wearing personal protective equipment, socially distancing, how we're changing how restaurants operate, what we've had to take out of guest rooms, which are high-touch items, and the additional cleaning we're putting in too. But, you know, we're trying to make sure that all of our guests around the world have a, have a, a safe experience and a good experience as they want to begin to travel. You know, one of the unintended byproducts of what you took out of the hotel room is, is very pleasing to me. You got rid of all the tent cards, all the paper. <laughs> Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. So speaking of that, I was in France, and um, you know, you walk into. Uh, I brought my wife and my two daughters, and I wanted to experience it as as a guest and see what our hotel's like. And you walk in the room, and a lot of the clutter was gone, but there were QR codes in many places. And I brought my phone out and scanned the QR code, and there was the room service menu. There was the guest services directory, and it really made me think and talk to our teams about going. Should any of this come back in? Reality is, is in, in the day and age of digital, in the day and age of mobile, um, can we be more sustainable by taking things that are basically disposable out of rooms, high touch, and do it a different way too? And so I think that you'll see that is the future of what's going to happen in hotels is that it'll be much more digital, much more mobile oriented going forward and uh, a lot less clutter in the rooms. You know, right before the pandemic, I'm sure you're a part of this. Hotels started shifting away from those individual plastic bottles of uh, shampoo and uh, conditioner and body lotion and replacing them with like wall units in the actual showers with larger dispensers. I would su- I would assume at this point that's not working. We're trying to determine that because there's a huge push still for environmental sustainability and how do we make sure we have less impact on the environment, but do it in a way that is safe and in a COVID uh, timeframe. And so, you know, we're still pushing ahead on it, honestly, Peter, saying we should be moving to bulk amenities because it's less impact on the environment, but making sure that we're having the right cleaning procedures in place and the right sustainability procedures in place to go forward too. So it's, it's, it is a tension point, though, to be very honest with you. People are talking about you're wrapping more things in plastic now, and is that good for the environment? I'm like, well, it's not, but we're also taking things out of the rooms that were there before. And so how we balance out those two things, because I think the environmental agenda is critically important going forward, uh, and so we have to make sure we can do that in the right way. Exactly. Now, you know, you talk about most of your hotels being open, but the occupancy is still not high. No, I mean, so it varies around the world. Um, you know, I was talking to our team in, in China the other day, and China's almost back to normal, to be very open. You know, it's sort of, you know, they contain the virus quite well. Uh, hey, they're, having, domestic... they're, having pool, they're having pool parties in Wuhan now. Pool parties in Wuhan. We're having record occupancies in resorts. You know, it really kind of, you know, it, it's kind of almost back to normal. 
and which is which is quite encouraging, right? It shows what people want to do. People want to travel for business and leisure. I was speaking to the team the other day. They were flying up from Shanghai to Beijing. All the flights were full, and it was business people traveling. And so it will show that it will come back when the virus is contained. The, the, the truth, the challenge is the virus isn't contained to most of the world, right? It's in varying situations and varying places. And so as we get more control, as therapeutics improve, and when a vaccine comes, it does give you confidence that, that occupancies and travel will come back because uh, it's an inherent need. People want to travel. We saw that once restrictions got lifted and also the people want to connect. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm much more confident about the future, about things getting like 20, whether it's 2022, 2023, looking more like 2018, is that's the reality. I mean, it's, we will get back to where we were. It's just going to be a bit of a challenging time between now and then. And then the question, of course, becomes, can you financially survive at 25 25- percent occupancy until that point happens. So if you look at our state now, um, the U.S. is pushing kind of now because our extended state portfolio is running kind of about 70 percent occupancy. Our mainstream hotels are running 50 percent. So the bulk of our hotels, the Holiday Inns, the Holiday Expresses and so forth in the U.S., are at a level that's quite sustainable. The real challenge is going to be urban and also big box kind of convention exhibition hotels. They're going to be struggling for a while. Yeah, that's one of the real challenges that the industry is going to face. Um, You know, how do groups, meetings, events, conventions, exhibitions come back uh, in a COVID environment? And I think that we're all trying to sort through that. We can understand how small meetings take place, and we're seeing those already start to happen. It's the big gatherings, and I think that's going to be a, a real challenge for the industry. And also, I mean, you know, places like New York, you know, we're already seeing a number of hotels in New York decide that they're just not going to reopen. And we've seen that, that, and that yeah, and that brings yeah. me up to my my next item up for bids here on the Price Is Right, and that's most people don't realize, consumers don't realize, that even though they recognize the Holiday Inn brand and the Intercontinental brand or Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, whatever, most of your companies are management firms, and not everybody has equity in the buildings that they're managing, um, and so your real challenge, of course, is to deal with the owners and their financial stability, because they're really hurting. In many cases, Uh, if you look at the foreclosure notes, uh, the percentage about a year ago, which would be normal, by the way, of hotels that might be facing foreclosure was something ridiculously low, like 1.8 percent. Today, the number of hotels where the owners have missed debt service and they haven't made their payments is over 22 percent. That's a little scary. It's a, it's a big issue for the industry. And, um, you know, when this all started, I talked to our teams around the world and said, We've got a number of constituents out there. We've got customers, colleagues, owners, shareholders, and government. And how, at the end of this, do we do the right thing? How do we manage that? And so with our owners, for example, we, you know, we cut some of our fees. We gave them release on capital spending. We gave them relief on payment terms and so forth. So we've really been focusing on the liquidity of our owners. Uh, in the thousands of hotels around the world, because, I mean, we have thousands and thousands of owners of these hotels. And how do we help them get through this? Because we want to be seen as being part of the solution, again, being doing the right thing. And so that's been critical, Peter, from the day one for us. Of how do we help all these owners get through it uh, and support them uh, the way we can? Because we've got a we've got a big balance sheet. We're a big global company and enabling them to kind of weather the storm. And I think we've done a good job. I mean, you kind of look at the U.S. now. Um, where our ownership base is now, the vast majority of them, you know, they're at a place now where the hotels are operating, they're covering their debt service, they're paying their bills, and they're employing people, which is critically important because this industry employs one in 10 people globally in hospitality and tourism. 
and it's critically important to job creation. And so we're trying to make sure that we're, again, we're helping make that um, continue to go forward and be, again, part of the solution. And, of course, there's the consumer aspect of all this. I'm sure you saw the story that ran earlier this week when United Airlines announced that for the first time in recent memory they were going to permanently get rid of those dreaded draconian ticket change fees, and then American and, and uh, Delta followed suit. Uh, are you doing similar things at, at, at Intercontinental where you're not going to give people uh, cancellation fees or you're, you're going you're to cut them some slack on reservations? Yeah, we did that months and months ago where we basically said we want people to be able to book with confidence because we recognize that people want to travel, but things are constantly changing. You know, you know, I live here, you know, I grew up in the U.S., but now I'm living here in the U.K., but every week something changes here. I, I can go to Portugal one week. I can't go next week. I can go to France one week. I can't go next week. People want to be able to book with confidence. And so what we've said is you can book your reservations. Don't worry about cancellation now because we want to make sure that you have the opportunity to travel if you can, and which is good for you personally and for your well-being and for your family, but don't worry about cancellations too. So we did that a long time ago, and we're very committed to that, and we will continue to be too because what we really want to do is enable people to travel because it, it is such a good thing for people personally and professionally, but we also don't want to make sure that it creates any stress in people's lives now because there's enough stress out there. And, you know, when you take a look at business travel being essentially more abundant in many cases, the really hope, at least in the short term, is to generate and, and stimulate leisure travel, and you got to give people a reason to go in an uncertain time when, as you said, things can change. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were—I was amazed at the pent-up demand in leisure travel around the world. Um, you know, you saw that once restrictions lifted, people were desperate to go on holiday, desperate to take that vacation, um, but they wanted to do it on their terms. So we saw again the Great American Road Trip take place in the U.S. You know, I saw many a Facebook post from, from my friends from university with their kids who were in high school driving, doing national parks and going to lakes, you know, and wanting to do that. And we've seen that happen around the world, that people do really want to travel from a leisure standpoint. Long haul is going to be tough, Peter, because people are a bit more concerned about getting on a 10-hour, 12-hour flight going someplace. But it will come back, right? I mean, because I know that, you know, you and I love to see the world. We love to, yep. to meet people, experience cultures, and it will come back. And, and we were at a record period of time for this industry before the pandemic, and I have to remind people about that, and it will come back. We will be well, you back. You know what? If you, a, if, if, if you want me to come back to a Holiday Inn, you got to bring back the green and white towels. you got to promise me. I know, I know. I, I know. I know you love those towels. I know. So I, I, I probably have to have them specially printed just for you at some point. <laughs> Keith Barr, everybody, the CEO of Intercontinental Hotels. Keith, thank you so much for joining us, and you can go to bed now. <laughs> Thanks, appreciate it. It's a bit late here, so, but uh, great to talk to you as always. My thanks to Keith. There's a pretty good chance you might have had a scheduled flight between last March and right now, and an equally good chance that that flight was canceled, or the country where you were headed closed their airspace, or someone got sick. You should get a refund, right? Well, that's not what happened to thousands of American passengers, and Scott McCartney, travel editor of the Wall Street Journal, did some digging. I am inundated still uh, with the after effects of... COVID-19 airline ticketing from so many of my listeners complaining that they have an inability, they've had an inability after many, many tries to get the airlines to refund their money on tickets that they purchased in good faith where flights were canceled, never operated, countries closed, and they're not going anywhere and they just wanted their money back. Uh, it's We're talking not just a little money out there, we're talking billions. That's right, with a B. And uh, the person who's kept tabs on that uh, 
is our good friend, one of our regulars on this show, as well as our weekly uh, series on the on public television called The Travel Detective. He's the travel editor of the Wall Street Journal, Scott McCartney. Hey, Scott. Hi, Peter. So it's billions, right? We're talking a lot of money out there. Yeah, no, it, it really is. It, it, it is billions. Um, and, and, and it's significant. It's significant for consumers. It's significant for, for how people are going to view uh, airlines and travel companies going forward. And, and what's really been startling to me is the, the underhanded things that airlines have done. Um, I talked to one family that, you know, thousands of dollars in these tickets on, on Alitalia. And, and Alitalia, they, they called the airline twice to cancel. The airline didn't officially cancel them because Italy wasn't closed yet, and then, and then Italy was closed. They, obviously, they didn't go, uh, but the flight operated, and Alitalia marked them as no-shows and said they were entitled to nothing, no voucher, no refund, nothing. And, and you know, it's just ridiculous. Um, the, uh, Air Canada is another one, I think, just... just like a lot of airlines, just flouting U.S. law um, by saying uh, we're not going to pay any attention to it. Um, Let me ask you this, It's not Scott, fair to consumers. It, it isn't. Let me ask you this. You mentioned the Alitalia uh, uh, example. Was that ever resolved? Um, it, it was resolved because I got involved. Um, and, and Alitalia responded by saying, uh, oh, we've changed our policy, and now they are entitled to vouchers. And that's all the family wanted. Um, because they, you know, they do plan to go. Um, but it, it does make me crazy that, that, you know, sometimes it takes you getting involved, it takes me getting involved um, for, for people to sort of get what's coming to them. Um, and that's, that's not fair to everyone else, and, and it's no way to, to treat your customers. I agree. And, you know, it's interesting. The airlines have not practiced great proactive communication when they're either canceling a flight or rebooking a flight, which, by the way, by definition, is a cancellation. Yeah, and and some of this again is has been really underhanded. Uh, United was was one in particular that um, was sent was sending communications to people saying you need to change your travel plans right away, and they even set some deadlines. Well. Well, they were forcing, pressuring people into making decisions about whether to cancel or not before the airline had actually changed its schedule, and they were holding off on schedule changes um, because if the airline canceled flights, then they'd have to give everybody a refund. Um, if the traveler canceled, and uh, then, then they'd be entitled to a voucher. So there was all this pressure to for the traveler to be proactive to cancel uh, before you really knew the full story of what the airline was going to do. And, you know, you mentioned Air Canada. That is now in the courts uh, in Canada. Uh, and just, to, you know, to update everybody, any airline flying to the United States, foreign or domestic, any airline flying within the United States, most likely domestic, if they uh, cancel your flight under the current U.S. Department of Transportation rules, you are entitled to a full refund back to your original form of payment, even if what you had purchased was a non-refundable ticket. In the case of Air Canada, so many of their flights did start in the United States or were coming to the United States, so they would basically be under that DOT jurisdiction. They then argued, no, we're not going to listen to the United States. We're under Canadian rules where we could just offer you a voucher. Uh, and the U.S. Department of Transportation has not done an enforcement action on Air Canada, but Air Canada now is in court 
in Canada, which who knows how long that case is going to last. Yeah, I, I think this, there's a broader issue here because uh, uh, you, you describe this perfectly, perfectly um, and, and it applies to a lot of things besides refunds. Um, safety, for, for example. Um, when an airline flies to the United States, it has to live up to U.S. safety regulations. Uh, and if, if, the, if the new norm is, uh, hey, uh, home rule is, is all that matters, um, then I think that has really broad implications uh, for, for travel. I, I, I mean, I think there, there's a lot more at stake here that the U.S. Department of Transportation is, is not enforcing um, and is, is not holding airlines accountable to. It, and I really think they need to step it up. Uh, and, you know, with Air Canada, Air Canada said, well, the Canadian Department of Transportation says we can, we can ignore the U.S. Well, uh, there's no other example in U.S. foreign policy where where another country just gets to say we we're going to ignore U.S. law when we're operating in the U.S. Exactly, and and the problem is that you know the current philosophy, if I can be so bold, of the U.S. Department of Transportation is to be a part of a continuing mood of anti-regulation. So. The problem is they haven't really done it enforced. They, they sent letters saying, could you please be nice, you know, or, or could you please remember our rules? When was the last time you got pulled over for speeding and the police officer said, could you just please remember our rules? You, yeah, you got no, a ticket. That, that's, that's exactly it. Um, and in this case, they, they don't need new regulations. They just need to enforce what's, what's already there, what's, what's already on the books. Um, uh, you know, and it's, it's, not, it's not like they're not, they don't know what's going on. Um, they did send out the warnings. They have been completely inundated with, with um, complaints from U.S. consumers. And, you know, this is not a small thing. Um, there are families with uh, five thousand, six thousand, ten thousand dollars tied up in in tickets uh, that that they should get their money back and, and they're not. There are folks who have paid for trips uh, that that they will never take. Um, they'll never, you know, conferences abroad that they're, they're just never going to end up using those those tickets. And and we should add, and, and part of the I think another problem in the industry is that is that the vouchers that airlines have been issuing. Uh, come with all kinds of strings attached to them. Um, I, I talked to one guy who, who had bought a, a family trip to St. Thomas. So I think there were 14 different tickets, uh, including for a 3-year-old and a 5-year-old and a 7-year-old, and the vouchers go to the passenger, not the person who paid for it. He wanted to use all that money for, for a trip he and his wife were taking, a, a long international trip, and, and instead American, in this case, said, uh, no, the three-year-old gets four hundred dollars, and the five-year-old gets gets a four hundred-dollar voucher. And uh, <laughs> eventually, we because again because uh, I reached out to American on his behalf, uh, logic prevailed, and they said, you know, this really is stupid. We're going to make an exception for this this guy. Um, but uh, you know, he had gone through the normal channels and been rejected, um, just like everybody else. I mean, God forbid, logic should get in the way. Uh, yeah. But here's here's the other thing. Uh, for many of our listeners, uh, you know, they don't have that many options. Uh, they can dispute the charge on their credit card bill if they do it within a certain amount of time. And that time is basically expired by now. Uh, 
So the other option that they have, again, we have to deal with statutes and limitations, is going to small claims court. And as long as your your claim is for under seventy seven thousand, I think it's seven thousand five hundred dollars in damages, uh, you can you can have that court case heard in small claims court. Uh, and a number of our listeners have done that, and a number of our listeners have prevailed in small claims court. Yeah, and 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 that is a you know that is an option. Um, I'm disappointed too in credit card companies. It's worth saying because basically, um, in in most cases I've heard about, if the airline has replied, uh, no, the customer's not entitled to a refund, just a voucher. The credit card company has said, hey, uh, we're siding with the merchant um, in in this case, and so they haven't been real helpful to people. Um, and and not investigated what what the truth is of whether the person is really entitled to a refund or not. Now there's an internal battle being fought within airlines to try to figure out how to price your ticket. Uh, We're seeing airline tickets all over the board in terms of pricing because there's no way to figure out demand in the traditional way. There's no way to figure out traveler behavior in the traditional way. And we're looking at airfares like, you know, $47 round-trip tickets from L.A. to Austin on American Airlines or a New York to L.A. Transcon round trip for like $160. It's unheard of. And then I looked at a trip the other day uh, from New York to London. They, uh, coach, they wanted $6,000. I'm like, you can't be serious. <laughs> Scott, there's no reasoning here anymore. No, there is no reasoning. And and this is really kind of fascinating um, because, you know, airlines have spent millions and millions of dollars on sophisticated artificial intelligence systems uh, that that predict demand uh, for for tickets so that I, I mean I always sort of feel like when I when I start searching for a ticket uh, the the airline knows I'm gonna want to go to Cleveland on the third Tuesday of October and uh, and and they price accordingly and and that means um, going higher the the, the whole the whole game for airlines is uh, you got to fill some seats with with cheap fare uh, people, but you don't want to fill too many. So you have to be able to predict uh, what the demand is going to be closer to departure, and that's what business travelers are, are going to pay. Uh, and uh, they can't predict anything now, um, and it's really because all those systems are based on historical data. Um, they they do know what demand is for the flight. Uh, uh, to Cleveland on on the third Tuesday of October at 2 p.m. Um, but they they know that because of what happened last year and the year before and three years before that, um, and all that is out the window. So the pricing systems are basically defunct. Uh, and, and what's also fascinating about it is that next year, uh, the, you know, the the history of this year is going to be completely irrelevant, and so. Uh, there again, they're going to have a difficult time pricing. And you do see these, these crazy, ridiculous prices. I've also seen the, the other extreme where um, it's kind of fascinating. You see the, the same price for a flight now and in October and November and March and April and June, and, and the system is doing absolutely no yield management on it. It's just the same price from now and, and forever. Uh, and that's that's a sort of a equal sign of the dysfunctioning of all the pricing systems. And for the foreseeable future, at least through next May, that's going to continue, I guess. Yeah, I, I think it is. Um, 
And, you know, there, there are obviously humans behind this. Um, what, what you're seeing in pricing, uh, you know, air, airlines are really struggling right now with the question of, uh, hey, should we offer low fares? Uh, because you use low fares to stimulate demand. Um, but can you really, in this environment, stimulate demand? Somebody who's afraid of flying, uh, you know, they're, they're probably equally afraid at $250 as they are at $50. Um, so what's the point of offering $50? You, you know that there's a certain number of people, um, and many of them are first responders or healthcare workers or, or people involved in health uh, care somehow, uh, there's a certain number of people who, who have to travel. And so should you treat them like business travelers and charge them high prices? Um, are you going to be accused of price gouging if you do that? Uh, should you, you know, most airlines have sort of settled in into, well, let's offer a decent fare, uh, you know, $100, $200, dollars $300, no more, uh, and uh, and get a decent price out of the people who are traveling, uh, and and not worry about um, trying to offer great sales to get people flying again. That'll come later, uh, or or uh, you know offering really high fares. Now six thousand to London. I mean, basically they don't want passengers. They're they're flying those trips uh, for cargo only, um, and. So what, what's really going to be interesting is when, if we get to vaccine treatment, all that, uh, what airlines are going to do to start uh, enticing people to come back and travel. And that's when I think you'll see the, the really great bargains. But for the moment, in terms of pricing, I think it's safe to say the airlines are flying somewhat blind. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and uh, you know, um, this, this, is, this is the industry that, that pioneers pricing uh, in so many ways and, and frustrates consumers with prices that change, uh, you know, five times a day, 12 times a day. Um, it, people get, you know, really crazed when they're shopping and the price suddenly jumps up and, and all that. Um, but well, I'll give, but you, right I'll give now, you a story consumer, that happened. I'll give you a story that happened to me. I mentioned the airfare from uh, New York to Los Angeles at about $180 or $170 round trip. Uh, I wanted to stay an extra day. So I called the airline and said, can I move it back a day? And they said, sure, uh, that'll be a $200 change fee. I said, your airfare is $79. <laughs> your airfare is $79. Wake up. Are you kidding? I failed math in high school, but I can do that kind of arithmetic. And, you know, I just said, you know what? Then great. I'll just make a new reservation for $79. Duh. Yeah. You know? <laughs> My thanks to Scott. Right now in New York alone, more than 1,000 restaurants have closed permanently, and the number of closings grows by the day. And this is happening all over the country. I talked with journalist and Food Network judge Troy Johnson to get his take on how bad it's really been, how bad it is, and what lies ahead. In New York City, where I live, there are 1,000 restaurants that have closed that are never going to reopen. Those are just the ones that are not going to reopen. The other ones, the jury's out. We don't know. Uh, we're seeing this across the country. Uh, we're seeing an unemployment level in the travel sector of about 51%, with one-third of those jobs maybe never returning. And joining me now, our, our resident food expert, uh, judge on the, uh, on the Food Network and a regular on our show on PBS called The Travel Detective, Troy Johnson. Troy, in your travels around the country, I mean, 
the desperation right now uh, is is palpable because you you can't fix the floor plan of enough restaurants to make it work based on what what the health protocols require. Yeah, it's it, the ultimate irony of all of this. And my industry and my friends in the restaurant industry have been crushed so hard. They've been crushed by the very thing that they bring to us. They brought people together in an age of isolation, an age when we're all on our phones, when they were all, you know, just grabbing things to go and we're not not talking to anybody. I mean, we really have become sort of a, in our, we go from one box to the next, we go from home, we go to work, we don't go out and really convene. That's what restaurants did. They brought us together. And unfortunately, that was what, exactly what the problem was when COVID-19 hit. You know, and the whole reason you go is to celebrate, to high five, to hug, to cheers and everything else. And that's why they got so hit. You know, it's the whole concept of community. And I look back over the last, what, six or seven months, and I'm saying, okay, what am I not spending money on now? Mm-hmm. Well, there are th- certain things I'm not spending on money now that I don't worry about. Like, I have no dry cleaning bills anymore, right? I, haven't I worn- can tell. <laughs> Thank I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, this is radio. Thank <laughs> God. No, but the bottom line is I'm not wearing a jacket and tie, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, here's Brooks Brothers going out of business because nobody's buying those kinds of clothes. No dry cleaning bills. I get that. But then I used to eat out three nights, maybe four nights a week, mm-hmm. wherever I was traveling in the world, right? Now, in the last seven months, I may have had a, a restaurant meal under different conditions, as you know, maybe five times. Uh-huh. So I'm eating at home. And, and you, you look at this and you go, for the first time in recent memory, Americans' kitchens right, in our own homes, are finally being used. They were underutilized. Uh-huh. But it wasn't what we were used to doing. No, are you kidding me? I'm not used to doing that many dishes. I've realized that the real value of American restaurants is having somebody else do your dishes for you. Because I'm This just dawned on you? I'm suffering. I am. I, I look. I'm like, how? I, my daughter just ate one bowl of cereal. How did she use nine bowls? You know, I, I don't get it. You know, so, but, you know, the thing about the restaurant industry is that in San Diego especially, is that it's, they're living right now on the PPP money and sunshine. Thank God for our industry. We have more days of sunshine than most um, in san diego in san diego but in new york here's what's going on it's one thing to be able to get a special provision from the mayor to be able to eat outside Mm -hmm. on the sidewalk or in parking lots until october november and december roll around right there's your revenue gone because there's no indoor dining yeah, it, the, the industry needs a bailout on every single level. They, they, they need help from the landlords to give them, you know, lease exceptions. And then the landlords need help from the banks, and the banks need help from the government. It's, it's absolutely going to be a group effort to save the industry. There are in estimates between 35% and 85% of restaurants, independent restaurants, will go out. And the problem here, Peter, is that the restaurants that are going to go out are not the chain restaurants. We've seen some chain restaurants go out, the California Pizza kitchen went out. You're going to see some of that. Never to come back? They, they, they filed for bankruptcy. You know, so I mean, that is, you're going to see some of that, that, you know, but you're going to see mostly mom and pops who don't have the financial largesse behind them and investors to be able to survive something like this, this economic dark winter. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So it's going to be brutal, but we are, the good things that you're going to see are a few things. Hey, what you're well, before the, we get to the good thing, okay. let's talk about some of the brands. Mm-hmm. You talk about the chains, right? Mm-hmm. You see retail going out. Yeah. I mean, 
in New York City, one out of every two stores on Madison Avenue is closed and not coming back. Mm-hmm. That's a that's outrageous, right? But it's true. Yeah. Uh, and then some of the other brands that we know don't laugh. I mean, you look at the airport retail food. They're not coming back. You know, what's happening to Cinnabon? Mm-hmm. By the way, I haven't had one in a long time. But they smell delicious. Oh, my God. Oh, they're God. lethal. But I mean, right? Or Krispy Kreme. Or, mm-hmm. or things that we used to take for granted. Where are they? Where'd they go? Where is the turnaround? Because we already can surmise that one-third of those jobs are not going to come back. At least one-third of those restaurants are not coming back. Now, I mentioned 1,000 restaurants in New York closing and never coming back. There are 19,000 restaurants in New York, or I should say now 18,000, but that's still a huge hit. Yeah, it's going to be a massive. It's going to be massive sloughing of the entire industry. It's a devastation of it. Uh, that that industry more so than almost anyone's, except for possibly live music venues, you know, and event spaces and that sort of thing. Here's the good things that are going to come out of this. That I've been talking with restaurant tours every single day since this started. You know, a few of the good things are this. The laws that are being momentarily changed are going to be permanent. You know, a lot of like alcohol to go. You know, a lot of states did not allow. Oh, great for states where people drive in their cars. Right. Yeah. Well, but we can be responsible and we can take some sort of ride sharing, you know, and take cocktails. Or yeah, we you, could, but we, I know. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, but that allows restaurants to make a little bit more income that they never had because they don't make money on food. They make money on alcohol. They make money on that bottle of wine. They make money on that cocktail that they spent, you know, months researching, you know, and what really pays the bills in a restaurant. That sort of thing is going to probably be permanent in California. We'll so see. liquor laws are going to have to be changed. Liquor laws are most likely going to be changed. Also, what you're going to get is you're going to get a, t- a, a taking... And that's not California. That's that's U.S. That, that will probably be across the U.S. I mean, it's usually a state-by-state state measure, but you know, I would see a lot of states are going to make that change permanent in an effort to help the restaurants because this isn't a month-long thing. When, when this by is, the way, if they don't change it across the U.S., yeah. you'll see people doing what they used to do in the old days, crossing state lines to go get something to drink. Absolutely. You know, and this is, I mean, this is not going to be a few months thing. Even when we have a vaccine, even when we think that it's over, the reverberation of the economic impact on the restaurant industry is going to last for years for them to take back. So they got to keep some of those things. Okay. Now, we've seen a number of other developments during COVID-19. Menus being simplified, mm-hmm. right? Fewer items on the bill. Absolutely. Right? Fewer items available for delivery just because of the nature of the food itself. Mm-hmm. Is that going to change? That's going to be. Most of the chefs that I've talked to have said that while this is one of the worst things that it could ever have ever happened to them, it also made them streamline their businesses, and it also made them figure out what was cost effective, what was you know a new way of doing business. Some of the places that would have never thought about doing takeout to go now have realized that no, we can do this, and we can make some meals that actually carry pretty well, and have this be an existing business plan for us, along with our dine-in once it all comes back. Okay, now I got to talk about the big bad elephant in the room Mm -hmm. and that is the delivery service markup oh my god right this is killing restaurants absolutely killing restaurants right i mean i've talked to restaurateurs who are telling me that the markup is like 30 percent in some cases for the delivery fees that that they're paying for these guys the grub hubs and all those guys delivering where do you find the solution there now 
Now, there is not a solution except for in the immediate term. And a lot of cities are doing this. Portland's done this. New York's done this. San Francisco's done this. L.A.'s done this. The city councils have voted to put momentary caps on how much of a percentage those third-party delivery apps, Grubhub, Uber Eats, Postmates, how much they can charge the restaurant. Because you're right, Peter, it's 25 to 30 percent. When you're talking about a restaurant that makes— that's your profit. That's your profit. They only make—this restaurant only makes 7 percent profit margin on any sale. Then that, that third-party delivery app's taken 30. So the city councils have stepped in and said you cannot charge more than 10 or 15. That's got to happen in the short term. And then in the long term— well, that's, That explains to me why this, I see so many signs in restaurants saying, please call us directly. Do not use third-party delivery apps. And I, I apologize if they can't make money, if they, they have to figure out a, a different way to make money. Because you cannot charge a restaurateur, especially during a pandemic, 25 to 30 percent of their profits on every single order. It is absolutely killing them in a time of dire need. You know, so please go directly through the restaurant or call, you know, through the website, call them, pick up, get them through the restaurant's own website, own website. Exactly. So, I mean, the third party delivery apps need to go. And the last part that's going to be a silver lining is that you're going to get these cities taken back for the people and not cars. San Diego, where I live, we have a big problem with that we've been built for car culture and not so much for walking and public promenades and things like that. Now you see, in order to survive, they've let the restaurants spill out in the streets and create these outdoor dining spaces. Those are going to stay. They're going to start shutting down a lot of streets, maybe permanently. They've been talking about doing We're shutting it. them down in New York. Yeah, you know, and giving, giving it back to the people. We've seen time and time again that when you take public space back from cars and give it to people, it is a win-win, and it makes everybody feel better about their city. But people have to become better drivers because we've had a couple of accidents in New York where cars are crashing into diners. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I've seen the way people drive in San Diego, and it's, yeah. it's, it's not encouraging, let's just say. No. That. Yeah. No, they're going to have to change liquor laws. They're going to have to change traffic flow, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And they're going to have to change the way we do delivery because, as you say— that markup is killing the owners. Yeah, and it's going to absolutely revolutionize the way that they do business at a core molecular level. Right, and maybe, maybe in New York I can order a grilled cheese that's not $32. <laughs> what do you think? I wouldn't get my hopes up on that one, Peter. It's New York. <laughs> my thanks to Troy Johnson, to Scott McCartney, and to Keith Barr. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to listen, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. For continuous updates on breaking travel news, log on to petergreenberg.com. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Millie Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. 
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.